This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So back in 2012 and 2013, for two seasons, I was a volunteer soccer coach in the Glen Ellen Rec Soccer League. I think I still claim the title of the worst coaching record ever. The first season, we didn't win a single game. Second season, we improved. We won a game, maybe two, and we tied one. So we actually got better. Um, the team was a little challenging, so all of the kids had never played soccer before. Well, except for one. Um, and most of the kids had never played an organized sport before in their lives. So most of the kids were refugees from Myanmar or Sudan or immigrants from Mexico. So it was kind of a ragtag team of people who we would go over to the Parkside Apartments in Glen Ellen and we'd pile them all into a van and we'd head over to the soccer field and we would get there and inevitably some kid didn't have a cleat, another kid didn't have socks, and so we were always trying to mix and match and put this team together. It was scrappy. But I gotta say, they were a lot of fun. And they were courageous. And if there was an award for the most improved player, seven of my kids would have tied for first place because they all improved not due to my coaching, just game experience. So they were all part of a set of apartment buildings or a network of buildings called the Parkside Apartments. And I know many of you have been long, here long enough, you remember the Parkside Apartments. There was a group of about eight to 10 young adults from res, singles, married couples, who moved into those apartments, Section 8 housing, they moved into those apartments to not only be a witness and to bring the love of Christ, but also to receive and to learn from all of these people who had, from all over the globe, who had recently arrived, and this was their first stop in the United States on their journey, hopefully towards U.S. citizenship. Those apartments still exist, but they are no longer Section 8 housing. Actually, there were some people that wanted to drive that out of there and drive that particular demographic out of there, and they succeeded. So it no longer exists as Parkside Apartments. But I tell you, those kids and those young adults from Res, they taught me a really important lesson about something on the heart of God, and that is his particular love for people that the world often doesn't see. And those apartment buildings were Literally, you couldn't see it. And you couldn't see those kids. And you couldn't see those families. So I'm doing a sermon, or we're, we are doing a sermon series. I'm not doing all of them, but it's actually a three-part series that we're going to do in January on who matters, who counts. Who matters to God? Who counts to God? So we were going to talk about the unborn, we're going to talk about refugees, and we're going to talk about persons with disabilities. But because of some things we have going on in our community right now, we took the middle one out and said, let's just do this one now, and then let's do the other two in January. So we'll get to those. So this is actually part of that series. Because in the next year or so, we're going to have 300 refugees arriving into DuPage County, 750 in the, in the Chicagoland area, and that does not include 60 extra 
special status refugees from Afghanistan who will also be arriving in DuPage County. So I want to ask the question, <clears throat> is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? <clears throat> is that an opportunity or is that a threat? Is that something we should open our hearts to or close our hearts to? Let me tell you three things I'm not going to talk about this morning. I am not going to talk about what is the right number of refugees that our country should allow into this country at this particular point in time. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to talk about whether refugees are a drain on our economy or a national security threat. And I'm not going to talk about the government's role to secure our borders. And let me just say, those are really important questions. And they're really valid. And they're okay to ask those questions. I'm not dismissing them like they're not important. But my only goal for this sermon in 25 minutes, in a setting of worship with the people of God, my only goal is to just say, let us immerse ourselves in God's word on this topic. Let the word of God stir our minds, shape our imagination, enkindle our affections, and change our behavior. That is my, really my only goal for this, this sermon, to let the Bible change how we think and feel and act. In particular, I want to focus on one passage, the passage that you heard read. So if you have your Bibles, it would, I think it would really help if, as I walk through this, you're going to see with me because one of the things I love is just opening a passage of the Bible, and we kind of we learn together, we discover together. And it's not like I have all the answers. I want to see, I want you to engage your minds and your hearts and to, and to walk with me through this passage. And maybe you'll see some things that, that I miss. So verse 12 of Deuteronomy chapter 10, it says, And now Israel, what does the Lord require of you? Wouldn't it be great if God would just tell you what he wants from you? Well, he has done that. This isn't an exhaustive answer to that question, but it's part of the answer. What does the Lord require? And as we're going to see, this is a passage primarily about worship. It's about praise. It's about adoration. It's about um, obedience. It's about awe and gratitude before the living God. But right in the middle of this, there's a couple verses that, that at first reading, they don't seem to fit that, that theme. Look at verses 18, and verses, 7, verses 18 and 19. He, the Lord, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So I want to ask three questions about these sojourners that are at the center of this passage. Who are they? Why does God care so much about them? And what does the Lord call us to do about it? What does the Lord require of us, specifically with this group of people called sojourners? So who are these people? Well, the word sojourners, translated sometimes in the Old Testament, sojourners or foreigners, is one Hebrew word, pronounced ger is the Hebrew word. The plural is the gerim. And it's a really important Bible word. It's used 90 times in the Old Testament, and it's used over 20 times in the book of Deuteronomy. So this is a really important word. Now, 
In our world, we have different categories. So we have, we have refugees, we have immigrants, we have those who are seeking asylum status. In the Bible, it doesn't break it up into different categories. It's just one group of people. It's people who have been dis forcibly displaced and who have come to live with the people of God and are usually in a, the, the nation of Israel and they're usually in a vulnerable state. So we think of, for instance, refugees is one of our categories. There are 79 million people who are classified as refugees in our world today. And just to give you a little perspective on what that number looks like, so take the state of Illinois, plus Wisconsin, plus Minnesota, plus North Dakota, plus South Dakota, and let's throw Michigan in there too. Every man, woman, and child in those six states, and then double it, and you have the number of people who have been forcibly displaced by persecution, famine, war, political or religious oppression who are in the world today. So that's the, the kind of situation we're dealing with. And in Bible times, they were often really vulnerable because they didn't have family, they had no one, no network of kin, and they didn't have land. And land was where you got your food, and that's where your wealth was. So they were very vulnerable. So imagine. Imagine this scenario. A young woman, she's recently lost her husband. She's with her mother-in-law, who's also lost her husband. Her mother-in-law is a member of Israel, a child of the, the covenant. The, the daughter-in-law is a foreigner. They come to Israel. They both lost their husbands. They have no land. The daughter-in-law has no kin except for her mother-in-law. The only work she can find is at a local farm going through the fields and picking what the farmers leave behind. She's vulnerable. She's open to attack from the mostly male working force. She is vulnerable. Well, you might recognize that. That's the story of the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. That's what that story is about. Dr. Danny Carroll is a professor at Wheaton. He's also written a book on this. He's one of the world's leading scholars on this whole what the sojourner is in the Old Testament. And uh, he's going to be talking with uh, our friend Damon Schrader, who's with World Relief, at a workshop that we have coming up on October 10th. But Dr. Carroll said this, the law codes in the ancient Near East are almost totally silent about these people. So none of the other law codes in the ancient Near East talk about protecting the sojourner. But he said, Danny Carroll says, the Old Testament law could not be more different. We find that laws regarding the ger are numerous and gracious, and even more extraordinary is that Israel's God is committed to them. Let me give you a couple of specific examples because this actually, like I said, is 90 times in the Bible. So, so for instance, when it comes to Sabbath rest, which for the Jewish people is a really big deal. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Well, explicitly in that commandment to take Sabbath rest is instructions to make sure that the sojourners among you also get their Sabbath rest. So if you have somebody working for you, and you're uh, a member of the, the covenant of the Jewish people, you make sure, and that person's a sojourner, you make sure they get Sabbath rest. Second thing, also make sure they get their wages on time. Don't pay them late. That's in the Bible. So later in Deuteronomy, it says, you shall give him, talking about the sojourner, his wages on the same day before the sunset, for he is poor and he counts on it lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Wow. 
That's pretty hardcore. Don't mess with these people. Don't think you can cheat them out of their wages. You pay them in a timely way. Now, we don't pay people every day, but you pay them in a, in a timely way, and you give them a fair wage. That is important to God. So why do these people matter so much? Well, we have to go back and get the whole context. So let's back up to verse 12 of Deuteronomy chapter 10. It says, and now Israel, what does the Lord require, require of you? Well, he's going to list five things. Fear the Lord your God, number one. Number two, walk in all his ways. Number three, love him. Number four, serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And number five, keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Five things, very specific things, but they're really all about a life, a whole life, whole person, whole body, whole soul, whole heart, life of worship to the living God. It's covenantal language. So verse 21, it says, he is your praise. He is your God. He is your praise. Think about that. What are the things you praise? People are always praising something, praising food, praising restaurants, praising a sports team, praising this, praising that, praising this powerful person, praising this celebrity. Well, first and foremost, the Lord is your praise. He is above all of that. As we say in one of our Anglican prayers, love him in all things and above all things. Or as we say every Sunday after Sunday in our Eucharistic prayer, the first thing Canon Stephen will say around the table is it is our right and duty and our joy always and everywhere to give you thanks. It's a life of worship. Look at verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. It all belongs to God. My friend Sebastian, our friend from Chile, he has an aquarium in his, uh, the house that they're renting, which is maybe 20 gallons, and he used to uh, do this for a living, um, take care of fish and buy fish and sell fish and all that kind of stuff. So he's got all these amazing fish in there, and he's got little weird little shrimp in there that dart around, and he's got these beautiful coral and these plants, and it's gorgeous. And you can just sit there and look at it for like hours on end. Well, God doesn't just have a 20-tank aquarium. He's got a universe. He's got a cosmos. He's got all kinds of species of fish and animals that we've never even discovered before. All kinds of plants, all kinds of um, constellations. The Lord has all of that. It all belongs to him. But then look at verse 15. Yet, yet, in contrast, or can you believe this? Yet. The Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day, yet the Lord set his heart on you. It is a, a, a phrase of affection. The Lord has affection for his people. The Lord, can you say that to yourself? The Lord set his heart on me. Wow. The Lord says, I can't get you off my mind. You're on my heart. I think about you. I love you. That is so tender. And why? Why is the Lord, why is the Lord so affectionate towards his people? It's because they're so amazing? 
It's because they're so good, because they're so righteous, because they're better and more moral than other nations? No. Deuteronomy chapter 7, you back up to chapter 7, verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all the people. You were weak. You were marginalized. Verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you that he loves you. Well, that doesn't make any sense. That's philosophical nonsense. No, not to the Lord. Because the Lord in his triune love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loving from all eternity, overflowed into his creation. It's from the Lord that he loves. God says, why do I love you? I love you because I love you. That's the best answer I can give you, God says. And really, that's the only answer I can give you. I love you because I love you. And so we are called to open our lives up to this God who loves us. Look at verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and no longer, and be no longer stubborn. There's no way to be delicate about this, okay? If you're a guy, you should feel a little like, oh, ouch. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. If you're a woman, you know guys in your life that have been circumcised. There is very few things that are more open and vulnerable than a circumcision. I wish I didn't have to talk about this, but it's in the Bible. <laughs> I just, most preachers, I, I was a younger preacher, I just skip over this one, but I can't, it's right there. But the Lord says, Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Be sensitive to me. Be vulnerable. Be open to me in your heart. That's something that men and women are called to do. This deep inner transformation by the Holy Spirit. So, you get this picture. It's all about worship. And then in the middle of it is this thing about sojourners. Well, actually, it says he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. So three groups of vulnerable people. And the idea is not that these are the only three groups of vulnerable people, but these are just examples. This is an exhaustive list. But these are three in particular that come up a lot in the Bible. The widow who has no resources, no financial support, no social network under her, the, the fatherless, and the sojourner. All three of them in that day were vulnerable and were open to exploitation. And the Lord says, the Lord says, I give him food and clothing. He's not just on my heart. I give practical help. And I want you to do the same. Verse 19, love the sojourner therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Why love the sojourners? Two reasons. One, because God loves them. Two, because you were sojourners. And you should know, of all people, should know what that is like. So he calls upon their past experience to stir their hearts up with compassion for their present reality of living among sojourners. Now, as I was reading this, I'm thinking, yeah, but wow, I don't remember when I was a sojourner. My great, great, great grandfather came from England and then moved to Canada and started working with horses, and I don't know, he used to work with beer when he was in England, and I, I just, that's what my daughter was able to trace on Ancestor.com, and that's about all I know. So I'm sort of disconnected from that. 
But here's the principle. The principle is simply this, that when a Christian, when a follower of Jesus sees somebody that's poor, that's vulnerable, that's weak, that's addicted, that's consumed with anger, that's making really terrible life choices, you are not moved to disgust. Doesn't mean you have to like the behavior. Doesn't mean that you, you may find it reprehensible. But you're not moved to disgust at the person because you can say, in a way, I'm looking in the mirror. Because apart from Christ, apart from the church, I was lost. And I would not have found my way home. Apart from Christ, apart from the church, I was, here's another graphic phrase from Ephesians chapter 2, I was, we were children of wrath. We had no hope. We couldn't work ourselves out of it. We were in a pit so deep that we couldn't get out. And yet the Lord Jesus sought you, and he saved you, and he forgave you, and he redeemed you, and you made, he made you his son and daughter, and he filled you with the Holy Spirit, and he sent you out into the world to bring the good news of Jesus Christ. And it was all by grace. And so you can say, economically, physically, I was in a very different place, but spiritually, I know what that's like to be lost. I know what that's like not to belong. I know what that's like to be an outcast. That's how the Christian views it. And that's what's motivating us in this passage. You've received grace and mercy that you didn't deserve. Now show that grace and mercy that other people may not deserve. So what do we do? How do we live? Well, so I was working on this sermon, and I, I knew that Resurrect, Church of the Resurrection had a long history of working with refugees and immigrants, but I didn't actually know how deep and far back it actually goes. So actually, I think it goes as far back as at least 36 years, probably more, when William and Ann Beasley were working in this area. But also 21 years ago, there was a group of about 20 people from Church of the Resurrection who formed a team together to sponsor a group of 10 older boys, young men from South Sudan. You may remember at that time that Sudan was at civil war. The North was attacking the South. The South was people were, uh, fathers were being killed, mothers were being captured, daughters were being killed. And so there are all these older boys and young men who were all on their own. Church of the Resurrection through World Relief took in 10 of these boys and help them get their start in this new country. Fifteen years ago, there's a couple in this church. They're sitting out here today. Let's call them Jim and Margaret, because that's their names. Um, <laughs> and um, let's call them that. They took in uh, five widows from Afghanistan whose husbands had been killed by the Taliban. And a young boy, they, they lived with them for a few weeks. They ate meals together, they cooked together, they became friends, they helped these women get a start. They still keep in touch to this day. About four years ago, there was a team from Church of the Resurrection. I could tell you more, I'm just giving you a few, few vignettes, who walked beside a family that arrived from a refugee camp in Africa. They took this family to the dentist, they helped them with taxes, helped them buy and drive a car, helped them with their English, helped their kids in school. One of the guys on that team said, 
I tell you, it was the easiest and deepest way to make an impact. A few months ago, there's a husband and wife team. I'll call them Joe and Jill, and that's actually not their names. Joe is mentoring an 18-year-old who came from an African country, helping him learn to drive, helping him with his career and college. And his wife, Jill, is an ESL tutor for a university student who fled Afghanistan five years ago. So you can see, I love this about Res. It's part of our DNA. Now, you might think at this point, I'm going to say, we have so many refugees coming in, all of you need to volunteer. I am not going to tell you that. That's just bad pastoral practice. Because there are a lot of other needs around this church, too. We need people to help with, and we're going to talk about eventually here, we need people to help with disabilities ministry. We need people to help with replanted. We need people to help with to pray outside of abortion clinics. We need help. We need a full slate. We need people are going into global missions. People are going into some really hard places. We need people to help out with res youth and res kids. So I can't tell you every single one of you should do this, but some of you will. Some of you, the Lord will touch your heart. Some of you, maybe the Lord will touch your heart for another group of vulnerable people. My, as I said, my only goal is to let the Word of God shape our imagination and kindle our affections and guide our behaviors so we begin to see the world through the eyes of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the people who uh, was working on this team that brought the family from Africa here, he said, he quoted, he, I quote him, he wrote me an email and he said, we've become like family to each other. I often look at the wife of our refugee family and ask myself, if my daughter was in a faraway country and in such a vulnerable situation, what would I want someone there to do to protect her? Once when that was on my mind, he said, I felt the Lord say, she's my daughter already. And she is. So pray with me how the Lord leads you to respond to this, how the Lord leads you to respond to other needs. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Immerse us in our baptismal vows. Immerse us in the life of the Eucharist. Immerse us in the life and grace of Jesus. His grace, our sin is great, but his grace is always greater. Shape our imagination and kindle our affections and guide our behavior. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.